Afternoon, folks. We're going to make a wee start, and I'll uh, bellow out just the introduction. But it's good to be here again. Quite a uh, winter's day. I don't know what happened to autumn. It seemed to go from summer straight into winter, but we're here now. And um, so it's great to have you along. Um, it's really great. I'm just thinking about um, what we're here to do, really, and it's called Gospel in the City. Gospel in the City, and what really is that about? Well, for me, the word gospel means good news, good news. So you've all been working hard today on a Wednesday and you come out and it's great to have some tea, coffee and to be able to listen to a talk later on. But the gospel is the good news of salvation, uh, how we can know God through personal faith in Christ. And we've got our friend Michael. Michael Shaw was here a few weeks ago with us. He's back by popular demand, so welcome, Michael. Thank you for coming. Michael is the assistant pastor uh, in Strandtown Baptist, so not too far away from the city. So thank you for coming. And uh, we're continuing to look at John's Gospel, and today we're in John chapter 6. And we're just going to turn to that now and read, and then I will pray and hand straight over to Michael. So John chapter 6, commencing to read at verse 16 through to 29. John 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Amen. 
And just pray now for Michael as he comes to speak to us. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for this time where we can gather once a week in the city centre in this hotel where we can get away from our work for a short space of time at this lunchtime. We thank you for your word. Thank you that it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the good news given to us. We thank you for our brother Michael and we pray for him just now as he comes to give us um, some inspiration and some insight into this passage of scripture. Would you be with him, give him the words to say and bless that word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Michael. That's great, thank you. Um, so yeah, I have to say that you know Christmas is a wonderful time of year. It's a time, of course, where we, we get gifts and, and receive them, but also give them to others as well. But I have to say my attitude towards getting gifts has changed quite a lot over the years. Whenever I was a child, I had quite a childlike approach towards receiving gifts because for me Christmas was all about getting the gift. I didn't really care about who the giver was, whether that was Santa or my parents or my aunties or uncles. All I cared about was getting the stuff, getting the gift on Christmas Day, unwrapping it and then going and playing with my toy for the rest of the day. That's what I cared about. Not so much about the giver but about the gift. But over time of course as an adult my my attitude has changed. Uh, I'm concerned not so much about the giver but more about the gift Uh, You might say that's very noble of you, Michael, to to have that attitude. I have to say it's not really because I'm noble. It's partly because the gifts have become a little bit less exciting over the years. So when I was 10 years old, it's easy to get excited as a child about getting a new bike, for example. But as an adult, uh, getting a pair of socks or some deodorant on Christmas Day, it's a little bit less exciting. So that's part of the reason why I am more concerned about the giver. But the other reason is, of course, because I, I treasure now the time that I have with my family, with my loved ones, with my, my wife or my mom and dad, whoever it is who gives me that gift. It's nice to receive the gift, but actually it's more important now that I spend time with my family on Christmas. What we see here in John chapter 6 is that the crowd who are responding to Jesus, they're acting a little bit more like my childlike self. They're they're more concerned about the goodies that Jesus can give to them, about the gifts that he can give to them, and they're less preoccupied with the giver, Jesus himself. And I want to look in our brief time here together just at two things. Number one, that Jesus is the powerful rescuer. We need a powerful rescuer, and that's exactly who Jesus is And then secondly, we need not just the gift, but we need the giver. Not just the gift, but the giver as well. Firstly then, we need a powerful rescuer. Now we find ourselves here in John chapter 6, verse 16 onwards, in the middle of the chapter. And you might ask yourself the question, well, why is this story about Jesus walking on the water, why does it come here at this point? It's a very well-known story, isn't it? That whilst the disciples are out fishing in in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of this fierce storm, he meets the disciples in the boats, walking on water. An absolutely miraculous feat. But if you've been with us for this series in the last week, you may have heard that uh, the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with just a tiny, basically a pack lunch, a tiny amount of food. And you'll know that John chapter 6 is essentially in three parts. You've got the first miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Then you have this second miracle where Jesus walks on water. And then thirdly, you have the discussion, the discourse where Jesus explains 
uh, the first miracle. So you might be asking the question, well, why has John put this second miracle in here? Does it really fit? Would it not be better just to have actually the first miracle and then an explanation of it later? And I want to suggest that there are really a couple of reasons why we can see that uh, John has written it in this way. Firstly, there's chronologically, that's the way the story happened. So John is faithfully reporting the facts. But secondly, also that this choice that John has made, it's not random, that actually these two miracles very much belong together. Because they point towards the fact that Jesus is a powerful divine rescuer. He's a powerful rescuer of his people. Firstly then, we see that he is a powerful rescuer in both of these miracles. If you, if you look at uh, the first miracle, he feeds 5,000 people using just this tiny amount of food. It's totally miraculous, isn't it? And by that, Jesus is demonstrating his power over nature, his power over the physical elements of this world. And we also see that, of course, in the second miracle. Jesus comes to his disciples on this boat in the middle of this storm, walking on water. It's a feat that neither you or I could ever do because the truth is that we are mere human beings. So firstly, what both of these miracles point to is the fact that Jesus is unbelievably powerful. He's not actually just a powerful human being. He's not a magician who's able to miraculously just walk on water as as if it's some sort of trick. But actually it points towards the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. Throughout all of uh, the miracles in John's Gospel, all of them are pointers. They're called signs that point towards the fact that Jesus is not a mere human being, but he is in fact God in the flesh. That's what we see, that Jesus is divine. But not only that, we also see that Jesus is the rescuer of his people. He's the rescuer of his people. If you were here last week, you may have been hearing, of course, about the feeding of 5,000 people, this amazing miracle that Jesus does. And whenever we read that account, I think we can be tempted with our 21st century eyes and ears to look at it and say, well, that is a wonderful miracle, but essentially it's just a divine picnic. So we might look at it and say, okay, Jesus is at this preaching conference. He's been preaching all day. And then there's a bit of a hiatus. There's a dinner time or lunch time. And instead of having to resort to outside catering, Jesus is just able to amazingly produce food for these 5,000 people. To, to us, it looks like a nice meal. But of course, it's much, much more than that. Because back 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day, uh, bread was essential to life. If you didn't have access to bread, very simply, you would die. You would die of starvation. And so we need to have not 21st century eyes and ears, but 1st century eyes and ears to recognize that what Jesus is doing is not just providing a nice meal for the people who are there, but he's actually providing the necessity of life itself. He's rescuing his people from almost certain death by starvation. That's what he's doing here. We might think back to a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, In Ireland at the time, there was the Great Famine, where tragically over a million people died due to starvation. Why was that? Well, it's because back then the staple food was potatoes. And so if you were living 150 years ago or 200 years ago, and you didn't have access to potatoes, well, then you you would die of starvation. This is what is going on here, that Jesus isn't providing just a divine picnic, but he's actually providing the means of life. He's a powerful rescuer. 
But we also see that, coming back to our story here today, uh, with Jesus walking in the water, we also see him do it there. Jesus comes in the midst of this really fierce storm. The wind and the waves are lapping up against the boats. And it's in the darkness of night. And the disciples are three or four miles away from shore. They are in danger. And yet, at this moment, that's when Jesus comes and he walks on water over to the boat. In this account in John, we see a fairly stripped-back version of the story. It doesn't provide us with a huge amount of detail. But this story is is recorded in in all four of the Gospels. And actually, if you read in Matthew chapter 14, you see that Matthew provides a bit more detail to the story. They're not conflicting accounts. They're both consistent, but Matthew gives a bit more detail. And in Matthew's Gospel, we read that Peter, at this point, in the middle of the storm, he gets out of the boat, walks onto the water by faith, and he walks over to Jesus. But then, because of the wind and the waves around him, he's overcome with fear, and so he begins to sink into the water. Now, at that moment, he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He reaches down and brings Peter back out of the water from certain death by drowning, and he rescues him. What we see here is that Jesus is not just divine, he's not just powerful, but he is the God who rescues his people. And in fact, in John's account, we see that he comes into the boat where the disciples are, and immediately they reach the other side of the shore. And what we're meant to see here is not that just John is using this as a nice turn of phrase, that very, very quickly they managed to row to the shore, but actually it's a divine intervention that Jesus immediately brings them from the middle of the lake to the other side of the shore. Jesus is the powerful rescuer. He's God in the flesh. Now you might say, well, the reaction from the crowd who witness one of these miracles surely should be to say, well, okay, Jesus, I recognize that you're God, and so I'm going to bow down before you and worship you. But that isn't what we find What we find is that the people are more preoccupied with the gift than they are with the giver. A bit like my childlike self at Christmas time. They're more obsessed with the stuff and the goodies that Jesus can provide than they are with Jesus himself. So secondly then, we need not only the gifts but the giver as well. Let's look at verse 25 of chapter 6. It says, When they found him on the other side of the lake... They asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you're not really interested in me and these signs that I've done that show that I am God. What you're interested in is just a free lunch. You're only interested in the the physical benefits that I can provide. In fact, the the Greek word that Jesus uses here when he says fill means to be filled to capacity. It can also be translated as to be fattened. So what, what these people are looking for is not just their daily bread to sustain them and nourish them and get them through the day. But they're looking for an abundance of food, more than they actually need or could ever want. 
they're essentially looking at Jesus and saying, look, we're going to stick with this miracle worker because, well, he'll always provide us with the food that we need. We won't have to work anymore. We can just sit back and Jesus will give us this food. He ate the loaves and had your fill. Now today, this isn't just an ancient problem that was there 2,000 years ago. Today, we can fall into this same trap where we look to Jesus more for the physical or material benefits that he gives us rather than wanting a relationship with him himself, rather than recognizing and worshiping that Jesus is God. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of the idea of the prosperity gospels, the idea that God really wants to bless us with physical, material benefits. That if we pray enough to him, well then he will promise to give you wealth uh, and health and a good family and all sorts of other material benefits. It's very popular, in, especially in certain parts of Africa and in America, but also in the UK as well. And so you might see from time to time, if you turn on the God channel, you'll see a guy uh, wearing a very sharp suit with excellent teeth and even better hair. And he, he will be promising, if you give me $10 to my ministry or £10, then you'll receive back uh, that money tenfold. Now, that's a very obvious to us. It might be an obvious kind of mistruth or lie. And in fact, when we look at the Bible, we see that the Bible doesn't support that idea at all. Because in the Bible, we find that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, well, actually, you need to go through suffering. Jesus says, uh, whoever wants to follow me must pick up their cross and follow me. And so the problem with the prosperity gospel is it's actually totally against the pattern that we see throughout the Bible and particularly in the New Testament. But I suspect that for most of us here, if we are Christians, then we might say, well, look, I'm not, I'm not going to buy into that prosperity gospel. I imagine for, for many of us, we're not uh, every night getting onto our knees and praying for a new Ferrari or a big massive mansion. It's probably not a temptation for us. But we can buy into a softer version of the prosperity gospel, where essentially we, like the crowd in Jesus' day, we say, Jesus, I don't really want you for who you are, but I want you for the, the gifts that you can give to me. And the softer version of the prosperity gospel says this, well, look, if I work hard for God, if I go to church and do all the right things, maybe I serve and I give my money to the poor, if I do these things then God really should be rewarding me. I'm working hard for God, and so God should reward me. The problem with this, of course, is that it's just a softer version of the prosperity gospel. It's not really backed up in Scripture at all. And the other problem with it is that what happens to us whenever we inevitably face moments of suffering or crisis in our lives? What do we do with that then? Because what happens, you know, whenever you, you face that, that problem, whenever your boss calls you into to a meeting and he says, well, look, our company's making redundancies and your job is on the line. Or you, your family situation is really pressurized and, and your children aren't doing the things that you want them to do. Or your marriage isn't going as well as you want it to go. There are all sorts of problems and suffering that we will face in this life. How do we respond I had a friend who recently said to me uh, that he'd become more and more disillusioned with his faith. And in fact, he ended up walking away from his faith in the Lord Jesus because all throughout his life, in his teenage years and in his 20s, he'd been looking for a spouse. 
And when that didn't happen, he's in his 30s now. When that didn't happen, he found himself bitter and disappointed and disillusioned. He had bought into this idea that, well, if I go to church and I do all the right things and I pray to God, then surely God should reward me with the things that I want. Jesus doesn't promise that at all. And so the question for us is this, are we in danger of following Jesus? Not because we want a relationship with the giver, but because we want to have the gifts. We want the gifts. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. See, Jesus is much more concerned, isn't he, with not the things of this life that are temporary and that are going to spoil and fade, but he's much more concerned with eternal life, without much longer-term perspective. So the problem that the crowd had in Jesus' time was that they were really focused on this life. There's a very popular phrase at the moment in our culture, uh, to have your best life now. So you need to do. You need to have your best life now. And that's essentially what these people were buying into. They weren't really thinking beyond the demands of their own belly. They just wanted another lunch and another dinner. And they were looking to the temporary things of this life. What Jesus says is, don't just focus on those temporary things. The challenge for us today is that, of course, we, anytime we want, we can go to the supermarket, get our food. It's not really that much of a struggle for most of us. But of course, there are other things, aren't there? The bills that need to be paid, the mortgage that we have, the holidays we go on, and on and on the distractions come. The things of this life that take us away from the eternal perspective. Jesus says, don't just focus on those things, but focus on the eternal life that I'm offering to you. Finally then, how do we get this food? How do we get this food that endures to eternal life, this relationship with Jesus? The crowd asked Jesus this question in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus responds by saying this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's interesting that, of course, the crowd, whenever Jesus is talking about this eternal life, this eternal food, the next question, of course, is, okay, well, what do we need to do in order to, to get that? What works do you require? And Jesus doesn't say, okay, here's, here's a five-step process. Firstly, you need to pray. Then you need to go to church. Then you need to serve. No, he doesn't do any of that. He says simply, you must believe in the one he has sent, which is Jesus himself. The thing is that we're not just off the hook. We can't just sit back and say, okay, well, that's all fine. All I need to do is sit here and, and intellectually believe or assent to a set of ideas, and then that's, that's it. Now, the word belief that Jesus uses here, it's the word in Greek, pistio. And it means belief, but it also means to entrust. To entrust. What Jesus is saying here is not just, I want you to agree that I am God, because after all, even the devil knows that Jesus is God, and yet he's an enemy and a rebel of God. So, so it's not just that we sign up to a list of ideas, but it's much more than that. It's entrusting ourselves and our lives to Jesus. There was a man in America in the 1800s by the name of Charles Blondin. Blondin was one of the greatest tightrope walkers who ever, who ever lived. 
Uh, and in 1860, he did this incredible feat. He walked across the Niagara Falls on a, on a tightrope. You may know this story. A distance of 1,100 feet from one side of Niagara Falls to the other. And on that day when he was doing that, he didn't just do it once or twice. He did it several times. One of the times he did it blindfolded. Another time he did it with a wheelbarrow. But after one of these successful trips across, he came and he came to the crowd. Of course, there were thousands of people from all around the world who came to see Blondin perform. And so he said to the crowds, do you believe that I can cross the Niagara Falls with a man on my back? And the crowd all said, yes, Blondin, we believe, we believe. You're the, you're the greatest tightrope walker who's ever lived. We believe. And then he said, who wants to volunteer? And of course, there was total silence. Until one man, his manager, a guy by the name of Harry Colcord, he stepped forward and said, yes, I'll do it. And he got onto Blondin's back and together they made their way tentatively across and over to the other side. Now, the reaction of the crowd that day showed that they didn't really believe Blondin. They may have said, yeah, we believe, we believe. But actually, when it came down to it, they weren't willing to entrust themselves to him. Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe or to entrust the one he has sent. I don't know what your situation is here today. You may be a Christian, maybe you've already made that decision where you said, yes, Jesus, I entrust my life to you. But we need to understand that this is an active thing, isn't it? It's wonderful to have that one-time decision where we give our lives over to Christ. But actually, it's a daily process where we come to God and say, God, I'm sorry I've been distracted by some of these things, the temporary things of this life. And I want to entrust my life to you again. But maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian. Uh, You've gone to church for a long time, maybe all your life. And you even know that Jesus is God. But actually, you've never taken that next step, the most important step, to entrust your entire life, mind, body, and soul, over to Jesus. I really want to encourage you to do that today. It is the most wonderful uh, decision that you'll ever make. Jesus says that he came to give life to the full. And so that's, this is the life that Jesus is promising, not just temporary food that will spoil, but actually eternal life, food that will never perish or spoil or fade. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus that you sent him, Lord, to, to live among us and to be with us. Lord, we want to say sorry for the times where we have become distracted by the physical, material benefits that you give to us. And Lord, we want to focus our minds again on the truth that Jesus is God. He's, he's our powerful rescuer. So Lord, we want to entrust our lives to you again afresh today. We want to thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for this gift of eternal life. And we praise you, Lord, that you made that possible through Jesus' death on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.